exploring the world of wireless theatres, the Springheel Saga, The Springheel Files, investigated by Cameron K. McEwen. File one, look back, leap forward. It started some months ago. I'd made the decision to leave Aberdeen and make my way to London. Thoughts of a new life, opportunities, and streets paved with gold and all that. Give things a chance and see what might happen. Having settled into my new place, I decided to take to the streets of the city and explore London by night. A thick fog had settled over the city and I quickly found myself lost on the back streets of London. With no phone signal and no map app available to help me out, I tried to retrace my steps and go back the way I came. Lost and getting rather cold now, I stumbled across a wee pub I'd somehow missed before, its lights illuminating the orangey-grey pea soup that surrounded me. So I decided to step in and, well, a wee dram wouldn't hurt now, would it? It was a cosy place, as I remember, and very old-fashioned. The owners had clearly gone to some trouble to make the place look exactly like it must have done back in the early 19th century. With still no signal on my phone, I took the opportunity to enjoy a pint of London bitter and get to know the locals. I wish I could remember more of what happened that night, but the talk in the smoky tavern was all about one thing. I finished my beer and after getting some directions, I made my way back home. The fog was thick and swirling when I left the pub and I made my way through the dark cobbled streets pondering the tales that I'd just heard about the leaping terror. But then, as the fog cleared, I found myself back in more familiar tarmac with signposts and bus stops and cars and pedestrians and I found my way home. My imagination, however, had been captured. The next day, the sun shone in a clear blue sky, but my mind was still possessed by fog and cobbled alleyways. And Spring-Heeled Jack. Who was he? What was he? And why had the people in that pub been so afraid of him? After a week, curiosity started to get the better of me. I resolved to return to the pub and get some answers. However, as much as I looked around, as many streets as I tried, it was nowhere to be found. Nowhere. Where had I found myself that night? And who was spring Jack? I think spring Jack was a ghost story. It's a campfire ghost tale. It might have been just a sort of well-to-do, young, gallivanting prankster. A lot of people seem to think he was some sort of an alien or an extraterrestrial. I don't think so. To me, it's definitely demonic. If you search on the internet, Springheel Jack is something of an elusive figure who spans nearly 80 years of London and British history, and possibly beyond. Sure, there's a Wikipedia entry, not to mention references in books, some appearances in comics, and even a radio series. It can't be real. I saw him. Who's there? I turned and out of the night it, it came. Look, forget it. Half the building's already collapsed. It's an emergency, isn't it? The locals believe the guilty party to be a ghost or goblin. For me to find out more, it was clear I needed expert help. During the course of my investigations, I found a man called Steve Ash. And, as luck would have it, Steve was planning a wee spring Jack adventure of his own. And it was here... The lanes around Barnes Village and also on um, Barnes Common itself 
that um, Spring Hill Jack was allegedly first sighted. Steve was taking us as a group to the very beginning of the legend, Barnes Common. So I'm walking into Barnes Common. I've, I've, I've spotted Steve. He cuts an interesting figure as he walks along. A very tall, wiry man. Perhaps a modern day Spring Hill Jack, I wonder. Despite being unnerved, we all continued on, deeper into the unwelcoming, creepy foliage, and then the sun began to set. Barnes Common is a remarkable area. Although the, we've just left the train station, we are now a couple of minutes away, but it seems like we are firmly in the middle of nowhere. And this area looks like it hasn't changed in perhaps a hundred years. Eventually, we arrived at our destination, the place where it all began. After stumbling around in the woods for the, in the dark for, for 10 minutes or so, we've actually discovered the abandoned cemetery of Barnes Common, where Spring Hill Jack was supposed to have come from when he scared the three, three or four people on Barnes Common and attacked one girl. So, on the common of rural Barnes, began a legend. After a good stiff drink and a restless night's sleep, I woke the next day to find an email from Steve the terror I'd experienced at Barnes Common was worth it. And just a few days later, he agreed to meet me in a pub called the Morgan Arms. The Morgan Arms? Were ghost sightings on the increase in this period, or was it much the same as before? Well, I think the whole Victorian period was a time when, when the Gothic imagination was developing, and there were lots of publications about ghosts and things. Who was he? His hands were cold, clammy, like a corpse. I screamed and he jumped clean over the wall. Who was it, Polly? It was the devil! Jack! She's seen old Jack! You know, it's always the newspapers that make the connection. People report these kind of things. They see, um, you know, a strange figure in black, which is now kind of seems fairly standard for Spring Hill Jack. Um, and leap, leaping around, and the newspapers say, oh, it's Spring Hill Jack, it'll be a great story. And this is, this is classic way the, you know, the Spring Hill Jack legend has kind of like perpetuated itself. With much of the genuine history and locations lost, it's no wonder that Spring Hill Jack appeals to the imagination. Bess, what have you come dressed as? Why, Spring Hill Jack, of course. Oh, you're so wicked. Oh, yes, I am. Be careful I don't ravish you later. <laughs> The Spring Hill Saga is a full cast radio production featuring London's very own bogeyman and an epic tale of a young police officer, Jonah Smith, and his connection to Spring Hill Jack as the world around them both change. But how did this series begin, especially as it was based around such an obscure figure? I tracked down Robert Valentine and Jack Bowman, who created the series, to find out. When we were at university, uh, my dad gave me this, uh, this book of the unexplained and it had all these phenomena in it. And uh, one was an entry about Spring Hill Jack. Now, as someone from London, I thought this was an amazing story. You know, why had I never heard of this guy? And back then, the internet was in its infancy. So I literally just had this one entry in the one book. And, um, and it was your, your idea, essentially. The core idea was an obsessed detective mm. hunts Spring Hill Jack. Yeah. And that, was, that core was what we took and turned into what became the Spring Hill Saga. However, that conversation was back in 2000. So things didn't move as fast as you might think. About seven years after uh, we had the initial discussion about the idea, Rob remembered it, and he just suddenly out of the blue turned around over dinner one night and said, do you remember that Spring Hill Jack thing that you wrote? I went, oh yeah, and you said, well, let's pitch it to Marielle. The Wireless Theatre Company was established in 2007 by Marielle Ronaker Temple, working with a view to bring new writing and acting radio talent to the download generation. It was around late 2007 when Robert and Jack brought the initial idea 
to wireless theatre. We took the idea, it's going to be a Victorian adventure serial and it's going to be about Springfield Jack and it's going to take place from the very opening of the Victorian era right till after Victoria's death. And really, we didn't tell Marielle much more than that. She just kind of knocked, she went, okay, yeah, sure, sounds, sounds good. So far, so good. Sounds simple. However, there are those out there who take the history of Springhill Jack very seriously. Was that a concern? We decided when we were going to tackle Springhill Jack that we wanted to go back to the original sightings, the original reports, and all the mythology that has been recorded about him since then, and be faithful to all of it. So really, the history of Springhill Jack was our guide rope. So how do they tackle such a vast subject in terms of making it a radio drama? Well, one important thing to keep in mind is that although we really researched the whole urban legend of Springhill Jack, it was just a MacGuffin on which to hang a old-fashioned adventure serial with cliffhangers, heroes and villains, chases, big excitement and yeah, yeah. intrigue and all this all the stuff we grew up with really. Seal the door! Don't let her escape! We'll never make it! Leave me there! With the original sightings, yes, they were based over a series of events that occurred uh, over several months. However, we just felt that with our story being a very, very fast-paced action adventure, it, it kind of made more sense to treat it as if it occurred very, very rapidly. So we took that timeline and condensed it down. After two years of script work in the first series, entitled The Strange Case of spring Jack, the team finally took the step of looking at casting the production. At the spring Saga's core is Jonah Smith, who we first meet as a survivor of the devastating fire of Scratch Row, then later a police constable who will become forever tied to Springhill Jack, a figure who reminds Jonah of someone he saw during that terrible, flame-filled night. And what's your name again? Jonah. Your dad will be fine, son. He'll be back soon, don't you worry. Look! What? The devil! You what? It's the devil on the roof! Let's get you somewhere safe. Look, up there, honestly, it's the devil on the roof. Casting Smith would be a tricky proposition for the team. Ideally, you'd want an actor to be Smith all the way through the entire run of the story from start to finish. So you're looking for a very unique style of voice actor, someone who could start out by playing 25 and by the end of the Spring Hill saga play much, much older. Step forward. Christopher Finney. I got involved in the Springheel saga because Jack Bowman, who um, who had written the series or co-written it, approached me because I knew him previously, and um, and he spoke to me about the the series and said, you know, we're, we're doing this, and I've got um, I've got a part in it that might be, you know, right up your street, and would you take a look at it? Am I keeping you lads from anything? It was something that you just don't get anymore. It was an adventure serial that was kind of reminiscent of those 1930s. Um, radio shows that you get, you know, things like The Shadow with Orson Welles and all that kind of stuff. Simple enough, isn't it? I really wanted to see if they could pull off what they were talking about doing, because if they could, I thought it would be, you know, the sort of thing that hadn't been seen in uh, in quite some time. I asked Christopher if the scale and challenges of the production were obvious. I think the challenges of the first series were really just... Um, getting a feel for how the thing was going to work because obviously it's an action-based serial. There was a lot of, you know, running and jumping going on and all that kind of stuff. It's taken to the rooftops! Come on, let's follow it. We can make the jump! Are you sure? Get them! Oh, heck. Now! 
Surely it's not just all about exciting action scenes, though. Christopher explains what had to be at the heart of the series. It was about trying to, um, first of all, concentrate on the character and the story and, and make that believable. But at the same time, it was, it was also working out how to put across these, these action scenes that were going to happen um, and do it in a way that people would understand because you couldn't see it, you could only hear it. With a hero in place, attention turned to finding Smith a worthy adversary in the form of Lord Septimus Wayland. But where did Robert and Jack start? It seemed they had only one choice right from the very beginning. Julian Glover. Ah, please do come in, gentlemen. Working with Julian Glover, uh, literally amazing. It know. was wonderful. I mean, yeah. well, yeah, I mean, just in terms of, not only is he a fantastic actor, but he's been the bad guy in about every, everything. At least once in everything we love. From, yeah. From, you know, James Bond, Indiana Jones, Doctor Who, uh, The Saint. The fact is, he's... He's the go-to villain, really, for all this kind of stuff. And by casting him, we were paying homage to every, everything we love and um, everything that influenced mm. us on this project. Sentimus. Constable Smith, good afternoon. Please make yourself a home. A hero and a villain ready to do battle. Once Christopher Finney and Julian Glover were in place, the job began of fleshing out the rest of the key cast. Next came Jonah's best friend and fellow police officer, Toby Hooks, played by Matthew Dewar. His casting, along with several others, came about after a test reading some months before production. What really appealed to me about this project was the Victorian detective story nature of it. And I loved the way the dialogue had been written. I just thought it was really thrilling. And the character of Hooks just seemed like a great, fun wingman. A passing young lady who carries a loaded pistol and enjoys nocturnal coach rides around Clapham. The ending gunfire. Who breaks into abandoned churches and almost gets nobbled by two of the most wanted men in London. Rounding out the last main role was Jessica Dennis as the elusive Charlotte Fitzrandolph. When we were scripting the first series, we kind of originally saw Charlotte Fitzrandolph in the vein of uh, like Mrs. Peel from The Avengers. Uh, we did a test read through and Jess came along and I'd asked her just to come and uh, read and help out with the script development. And there's something about Jess that brought a more gentle sensitivity to the part that she was still this uh, kick ass heroine in that, that we'd scripted, but she brought a great humanity to the part. So. Was that what Jessica Dennis thought? My first impressions of Charlotte as a character were that she was plucky and ballsy and strong and by no means your typical damsel in distress. I think Charlotte fits in beautifully. She adds a nice note of femininity and a, and a hint of romance, but she really drives the action forward. With the core actors in place, it was time to cast the rest of the strange case of spring Jack. However, the ambition of the first series didn't make it easy. It was always our intention that um, the mm. Spring Saga would be a huge production as far as the listeners were concerned. It would sound huge with a large cast, many locations, lots of action and adventure and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. However, what we didn't um, intend and what ended up happening was that the recording of the first series was a mammoth production for us too, <laughs> behind the scenes. We'd written a large cast and usually yeah. you have a small number of actors doubling and tripling up characters but uh, the, like the, mo the most you'll have on a like a, I've, I've seen on a BBC radio production uh, would be about 11 or 12 yeah but how many people do we have in a few years 23 in one day with two years of development and nearly six months of pre-production the date to record the first series was set however 
Despite all the planning, the team was unprepared for a last-minute setback. Andrew Swan was our original director. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. you weren't going to direct it, were you? No, was no, it wasn't, yeah. And he, uh, he fell ill less than 24 hours before the production, and he, he was confined to quarters. Yeah, a lot less than 24 hours before production. I think yeah. I had was it seven hours' notice. Also lost at the last minute was David Benson due to a scheduling clash. However, as it was clear a pickup session would be required for the young Jonah, the production was able to proceed based around a recording session out of sequence. Robert also remembers a very specific concern. I was really scared at the prospect of uh, Julian Glover turning up to direct because <laughs> I had no sleep, I was unprepared, and General Veers was going to walk in <laughs> and find out how unprepared I was, then yell at me and then... He would ask Lord Vader to begin his yeah, descent. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Despite this, production began on schedule, and at 9am on the 16th of March 2010, the strange case of spring Jack, the first series of the spring saga, began recording. It was all hands on deck to get the planned day's recording down on time, which resulted in some intriguing approaches to the session. Normally with radio drama what you do is you record in sequence, you start at the start and you go through to the end. However, because we had a large cast and we wanted a large cast, we had to accommodate people's movements. So this meant we treated it more like a film or TV shoot, which is very unusual for audio. So we recorded out of sequence. Uh, we would start at 9am on a scene from episode 2 and then work back and forth through the script until we got all the material down. This meant that the team were able to work out how to still include Ben Whitehead, who plays the infamous Bermondsey lurker, Mr Durbeville. Certain sequences therefore saw the cast recording dialogue with read-ins, as Ben recalls. I think I recorded all the bits on my own. Oh, no, I, that's not true. I worked with a couple of lads on the, on the other one. Um, but obviously I'll just have to be big-headed and say, I enjoyed working with myself the most. Playing a nearly silent character on radio was fantastic. You know, the other, the other characters do all the work for you, really, right? Yeah, come on. Uh, working with Julian Glover was an experience I will never, ever um, remember because I didn't. I was on my own. Despite the unorthodox approach to recording, many of the actors involved were extremely excited. Colin Holt who plays the Chief Constable, remembers. The character of the Chief Constable appealed to me because I was able to channel the energy of Bob Hoskins, I felt, into the role of, of the Chief Constable. And uh, yes, I was able to wheel out my gruff cockney. Some of the cast, such as Debbie Lee Simmons, found it a very therapeutic day. There's so much that appealed to me uh, about becoming a part of the Spring Hill saga. The character of Lucy Scales was brilliant. One, she was fun and bubbly, but also she got to scream, which was lovely as an actress and very, very cathartic to do repeatedly for the afternoon. Some relish the challenge of working in a new medium, such as Simon Cruz Walters. The lovable Mr Peewitt remembers... Although I had tackled most things over the years, radio was not one of them. My memories as a boy of Dick Barton, Major Bloodnock, Larry the Lamb, Al Reed, Tony Hancock, all remain very firmly in my mind as characters purely from their voices. Most admirable. I hope you don't mind if I do. For the cast, though... There was one twist in the story which surprised everyone. Spoilers ahead, listeners. It was really, really easy to kill off Hooks in episode three because he's the perfect sacrificial lamb. You know, that's what the character yeah. is for. You know. I, I remember the moment when the decision came and you just suddenly said from like about two scenes into episode three, why is Hooks here? Yeah, no, he needs to die. Yeah, yeah, yeah and then yeah, between yeah. us we just went, that's it. Yeah. Time for Hooks to go. Damn! 
Sam! Constable! Joe! Toby! Hold on! It's fine. If I can just... Give me a hand! Reach this tile. I've here. almost got you. It's too... No! Toby! But how did they know such a gamble might pay off? I realised that that really might work killing off Hooks. We did a test read-through and he performed Hooks during the death scene and after Hooks died every, every actor in the room went aww and that's when we thought yeah, yeah. that's how Toby Hooks and that's how he has to die. You do it. It was all true wasn't it? All of it. Yes. I told you. I know. But at 6.10pm only 10 minutes over schedule production wrapped and the first series of the Spring Hill Saga was almost in the can. Despite the fact we had a very, very tightly planned schedule for the day, there were a few little things that we couldn't quite get down on the day. So we worked around these things by using stand-ins and recording around the actors. And then what we did was later on down the line, we planned a second studio session of two hours just to tidy up all these little details. The last session took place on the 7th of July, 2010. With the pickup session complete, work began in the post-production. However, the real hard work was just beginning. One of the things I really wanted to do with the Spring Hill Saga is showcase the idea that we can make radio drama sound and feel more exciting and immersive and more detailed and led. The reason being is if you look what's happened to your home entertainment in the last few years, your VHS collection has moved into DVD, DVD has moved into Blu-ray, you now get high quality HD digital downloads. So my idea has always been that Spring Hill could be a showcase for HDing radio to make very, very layered, detailed, beautiful soundscapes that's almost cinematic to listen to. It sounds like it's coming from here, but it's just... It's the wall. That can't be right. Surely, there must be someone else. Wait, here. The first series of the Spring Hill Saga began to roll out at Christmas 2010, over three years since the initial pitch and ten years since the initial discussion. How did Robert and Jack feel by the end of it all? For me, it's just been really nice to have an idea and to write it and produce it and release it and for it to come out the way you intended. Yeah. It's never happened to me before. Yeah. It seems since work in the first series began, a lot of what we thought we knew about Spring Hill Jack is rapidly changing, as Steve Ash explains. The tropes we understand now as sort of like hauntings and ghost stories were really developing in this period and there was a lot of publications about ghosts and things and this was affecting the public imagination and heightening the consciousness of ghosts and hauntings and this kind of thing. So this would definitely have an effect on, on, on people's stories, I think. Perhaps because, because of the penny dreadfuls that were being published around the time as well. A lot of the things that we knew about Spring Hill, particularly from when we were originally researching, have changed an awful lot because people like Mike Dash have done a lot of work cutting through the kind of shroud that has built up around Spring Hill Jack. What we've done is we've tried to make this series more of a love letter to the myth and the legend of the character and as a result that's why certain elements are still included even though they most likely never existed. Robert and Jack further explained about the saga's other star, the capital itself. Well, the entire Spring Hill saga really is our love letter to London. I mean, Spring Hill Jack himself is a very vague, undefinable figure in London folklore. It was really fun portraying London as a farmyard, animal-infested <laughs> big true, town yeah. to the certain smoky, foggy London of Spring Hill Jack 3. 
I took to Nine Worlds, a science fiction and fantasy convention in London, to see how much influence Old Jack is now having today. I found Peter Murphy, who explains how the elusive Springheel Jack came into his life, and only very recently. I heard about him via a friend of mine, Paul, who uh, I do a podcast with, and we were talking about ideas for things we'd like to see on TV, write about, things like that. And he mentioned Springheel Jack as an idea that he'd, he remembered from a, when he was a kid. But why now? I think it's partly to do with the spreading of science fiction, fantasy, to become part of popular culture. Peter then directed me to Paul, who had an eerily similar story to tell. When I was a child, my mum bought me a, a book that was basically myths and legends, uh, all sorts of different monsters, vampires, werewolves, and that sort of thing. And there was one story in particular in this book that really interests me because it's something I'd never heard of before. And that was Spring Hill Jack. Spooky, huh? We've reached a sort of age now where people who, who remember him from childhood and also have now access to the internet and can get this, this fabulous backstory about this real, like, untapped like, creature. People now are coming at the age where they're starting to do their own things creatively. Later that day, I met Mitchell Boyd Hurst of cowshed.co.uk, who is not only aware of Spring Hill Jack, I had also listened to the first series. There was kind of a, a side reference in Elder Scrolls IV. That was enough to kind of stick in my head when I read the, uh, I think I think they were Hodder's books. And because I had heard it referenced not too long before, uh, I went and looked it up. And as someone with an interest in the real story, how did he feel about the first series? What I heard in the first two audio plays uh, follows the general uh, narrative uh, that's been put together for the, uh, the Springheel Jack incidents in the 1800s. Springheel Jack seems to be very much back, although people have different reasons as to why. Back to Paul. I think Springheel Jack is making a resurgence because he's riding the crest of this wave of horror at the moment, and I think the time's right for him to come back. However, it's Peter who sums it up the most beautifully. There's that romanticism about the older Victorian stuff which Spring Hill Jack represents almost. Intriguingly, the last few years has seen an increase in Spring Hill Jack's awareness. Emma Gibson of the Butcher's Apron podcast explains it wasn't always this way. We've chose Spring Hill Jack as a somewhat obscure figure for our first ever Butcher's Apron podcast just because we we both work in the arts and in research and culture and just a, a really quick search around the most amazing, strange, unheard stories in the UK. Spring Hill Jack is really, really appealing. And her own thoughts on Spring Hill Jack's continued appeal? Lots of people retell stories and, and that's really useful and that's how our society sort of carries on and to be able to tell us an old story in a new way I mean, I guess that's what we're all striving for as storytellers. With those words in mind, Series 1 of the Spring Hill Saga ends on a soft cliffhanger, promising more adventures for Jonah Smith, now alone after Hook's death, Charlotte's sudden departure, and the apparent demise of Spring Hill Jack himself. But surely that can't be the case. Dear Jonah, I have returned to Europe. There are so many questions to which I must find the answers. And if anyone can understand that, it's you. Springheel Series 1 ends with Smith without a love interest, without a best mate, mm -hmm. and just the knowledge he has to find out what Springheel Jack is. Mm. And when we start Springheel Jack 2 seven years later, that intention has become an obsession. The strange case of Springheel Jack has, it seems, only scratched the surface. So with the second and third series now on the way, 
Did the team prepare for this in advance or wait until they knew they could make more? We always design the first series to be part of a bigger story because, I mean, just looking at the Spring Hill Jack thing, I mean, it runs from 1837 through to 1904. Yeah, but we also knew that we wanted series one to be standalone just in case we didn't get a chance to do any more. In terms of approaching playing the character of Jonah Smith, I mean, I was I was aware from the beginning that the saga was going to be a sort of a, a three-part series and I had to sort of find a way of playing the guy convincingly, hopefully, at different times of his life. So now with their eyes in the second series, what does the spring saga have waiting for us? This series, entitled The Legend of spring Jack, moves the action down the years a little. The Legend of spring Jack opens up in 1845 with the murder of Maria Davis. Help me! Help me! Help me! Help me! Who probably never really existed, and Jack certainly didn't kill her, but the idea that he did has, over the years, become part of the, the wider mythology of the Spring Hill Jack legend. You do know what Spring Hill Jack is, don't you? What? Bums on seats! His mystery, romance and adventure, and the greatest story of our age. We wanted to include... Springhill Jack's elevation into popular culture on the stages of Penny Gaffs and in, and in the pages of Penny Dreadfuls. And what lies ahead for Jonah Smith? When this story opens, Smith is now a detective inspector, uh, a very solitary man obsessed with catching Springhill Jack. Of course, by this point, he is now a quasi-fictional character, and so Smith is no longer respected or taken seriously. So. He's a very different guy from the idealistic young man he was in the first serial. It's been a strange journey since that first peculiar night when I got lost here in London and I first discovered Springheel Jack. However, it's clear that the journey isn't quite yet over for him, the wireless theatre team, or indeed me. There's more to discover as I make my way deeper into this mysterious story. Next time, file two, if all the world's a stage. The Springheel files were investigated by Cameron K. McEwen. Production assistant, Emily Best. It was edited by Marie Tweche. With thanks to George Maddox. Visit www.wirelesstheatre.com to download full episodes of the Springheel saga. The Springheel Files were produced by Jack Bowman and Robert Valentine for Wireless Theatre.